if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the fields is an advantage to the land. He who loves money will be will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die, so that So what is the advantage to him who toils in the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labors in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Let us pray. God, as we continue our time of worship through the proclamation of your word, Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit you would make this text plain and clear to us through Matt's preaching. I pray that as we go from here that we will walk away with a sense of earnest love and passion for Christ that we did not have before, a deeper conviction towards you. Help us to see that the end of man's wisdom is vain, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is in his blessed name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Bruce. I'm going to send our kids to go to their classes today. And I'll tell you what, there was a lot of energy in here this morning, so you might start praying for our teachers now. 
It was great to hear everybody singing and praising God as they're heading out. I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open to what that passage that Pastor Bruce just read. That is Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 20. But before we get to our passage, I want to go back a few weeks in our series, go back two weeks in our series to chapter 4, where we broke down that chapter and we entitled it, The Price of Success. Now, it might be one of the ones you remember because we had a ladder sitting right here and I had a table right here with a bunch of different board games on it. And I talked about the price of success that we pay to try and win at the game of life. We talked about what the price was to continue to succeed. And the game that we had out there would represent a rung going up the ladder. And we started off with the game, sorry. That first rung and the price that people use other people to better their position. We call it oppression. We call it oppression, and it was really, even in that, we find no comfort. And nor does the person being oppressed find comfort. The second rung we talked about was the book of, or sorry, the book of, the rung of, and the game of chess. And it was a mental game. And we play these mental games in our head, and the desire to win the battle of our minds, because our mind is always going, and we're always trying to win. There is no rest. The third rung, the third game was Monopoly and that greed that drives us up that ladder. But the problem was there's no contentment because we always want to get to that next rung. And our fourth game was Solitaire because the higher you get up, the more isolated you are. You know that people don't want to play with you. They are afraid of you or they're in competition with you. They're playing the game sorry and they want to knock you off of that rung and take you back down to the bottom so they can take your place. And even if you do win and you do move forward, the unfortunate reality is is that nobody else cares. Just like in solitaire, if you win, nobody cares except for you. There is no meaningful relationships in that. Our last game that was at the top of the ladder was shoots and ladders because with one roll of the dice, with one spin of the wheel, everything could come down and then what? And then what? And even if it doesn't come tumbling down, guess what? The sad reality is you're going to die anyway. I know that sounds just incredibly cheery to start the morning off, but the thing was is that even as we look at it, we have to understand we don't get to take it with you because nothing on earth lasts forever. Nothing on earth lasts forever. Nobody wins the game that we play under the sun. Nobody wins it. Take, for example, Toby Keith. He passed away this week. And in it all, he was a big star. He had lots of money. He had lots of success. But guess what? He still died. This week, right here, we had a coffin. Because we had a funeral for a 31-year-old who was not as well known as Toby Keith. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know him. It was a a family that asked if we could kind of step in and do a last-minute kind of thing, and we were able to do that. But in it all, 31-year-old family, friends came to share stories. The truth is, even in the stories, his life ended. We have to remember there is no guarantee of tomorrow. There's no guarantee of even our next breath. And Solomon says, man, we put a whole lot of effort. We put a whole lot of effort trying to win a game that has no winners. And it's pretty astounding that we continue to do it over and over again, generation by generation. That was chapter four in a nutshell. Under the sun, you don't win at the game of life. Then Solomon made a shift into chapter five that we talked about last week. And in that shift into chapter five, 
He says, maybe we need to shift our perspective. If you can't win the game of life under the sun, maybe we need to start focusing over the sun. Stop stealing from God who is over the sun, who is over everything, who is eternal and giving all the things that he deserves to things that are temporary. Stop worshiping other things. He said, I want you to recognize who you are. I want you to recognize who God is and stop talking at God about how he needs to bless you to win and instead listen to God and worship him instead of yourself. Now that's quite the the shift. That's quite the, the, the tackling here that we see from Ecclesiastes 4 and Ecclesiastes 5. But why would he do it? It's because the price of success causes us to cut something out of our lives. It causes us to compromise. It causes us to push something off to the side. And unfortunately in our lives, the first thing that gets cut if we want to succeed is God and His church. And the truth of the matter is, is my guess is your parents taught you that. Your parents taught you that because sports were more important on a Sunday than church. And so many different things. I mean, I remember that's how I was growing up until my parents became stronger Christians and they said, all right, no more sports on Sunday. We'd have tournaments. I'd have to miss on Sundays. And all my coaches would be like, no, no, you can't miss. I'm like, my mom said so. That was just kind of it. But how many times have we been taught that, you know, the first thing that needs to go is God? Or even if it's not God, if we want success even within the church, we use the church for our gain instead of to glorify God. We look what we can consume versus what we can actually contribute. I tell you all that because today's passage is a continuation. As you heard Pastor Bruce read, you probably heard those games, those rungs of the ladder. And Solomon actually expands on these last two messages for us. He goes from talking about the price of success to really the definition of success. How do you define success? Obviously, today's the Super Bowl. Many of you are going to go and watch. Some of you care. Some of you do not. Some of you are more interested in Taylor Swift and Usher, didn't even realize there's a football game being played. But the truth is, is that will the loser today be considered a success because they made it that far? Will the loser today be considered a success because they made it that far? As a Packers fan, actually, Terry Scott, he's like, hey, are you, are you excited the Packers are playing today? You know, just kind of joking with me. And I'm like, you know, here's the thing about being a Packers fan. And that is, there's always tomorrow. Yeah, there's always, it's like being a Cubs fan. There's always next year, that kind, of, that kind of thinking. But this year, they went a whole lot further than they were supposed to. They weren't supposed to make the playoffs. They weren't supposed to win the first game of the playoffs. And many thought that they should have won that second game of the playoffs. So should they be considered a success? Because they didn't make it to the ultimate goal. We'll talk about the Cowboys for a second. Sorry, guys, to tear that wound again just for a quick second. But they won their division. That should be considered a success. They finished, what, 12 and 5, 13 and 4, something like that. They won their division, but then they lost that first game. And Jerry Jones got up afterwards and said, this was not a success. Well, what's the difference between the Packers and the Cowboys in that way? It was it original expectations. What defines success? Let's take a kid who maybe has a learning disability and he gets a C. He works really hard to get a C. Is that a success? What about the kid who maybe has all the abilities and he gets a C? Why isn't he a success? 
We have to figure out our definition of success. Who defines it? Well, generally, it's probably us, isn't it? We define success. As an individual, we define what it is. And maybe that's where the problem lies. It lies with us. Our thoughts, our definitions, and when it comes right down to it, our hearts that drive those thoughts and definitions. So let's start today with verses 8 and 9. My Bible has a heading that says these words, the realities of wealth. Now maybe yours has different headings in that way, but the interesting part of, of it to me is this. When we think of success, we immediately equate it to wealth. And in equating it to wealth, we have to look at this passage. And the thing that we have when we think about success is all about how much more we can get. How much more can we can get instead of being content with what we already have? I mean, when you think about success, is there ever a time in our success that we're okay with where we're at currently? And generally the answer is no. We want to continue to push on. We want to get more of whatever that might be. We talked about this shift in chapter 5 that was stealing from God. Stealing from God and giving glory to anything else that was out there. He continues that idea of stealing from, from or, or robbing from others, and we call it oppression. We already talked about that in four, but he's going to expand on it. And then he goes on to say, hey, you're also stealing from yourself. You're stealing from yourself because we're stealing from what really matters to pursue that thing that does not. And it's ruining us, as you will see in this passage. So when it comes right down to it, everything that Solomon is talking about, it's our heart. And it's our human desire for more in order to be satisfied. So let's pick up in verse 8. You heard Pastor Bruce read it. His translation was just a little bit different, so let me see what it says here. It says, If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation. Because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. Now, the reason why I reviewed chapter 4, the games in the rungs of the ladder two weeks ago, is because this is exactly what Solomon's going back to. He talks about this oppression. He's going into more detail. He's he's talking about that game of sorry. And he says, hey, back in chapter 4, I I observed the oppression of all the people, and there's nobody there to comfort them. People do cruel things to each other, and guess what? Nobody can stop it. Nobody can take the oppressed and make them feel better and make things right because the oppressed have no power. All the power lies in the hands of the oppressor and they can do whatever they want to whoever they want. And as we look at that, later in the chapter of chapter 4, he says the oppression doesn't end because even when the people who are the oppressors die, they have brought up a generation of other oppressors that are going to pass it on to. And even if that next generation has all of the right intentions in mind. Well, I've seen the way my parents did it. I've seen the way the other generations did it. I'm going to change things. The problem is is when we get into power, you know what power does? It corrupts. And you know what absolute power does? It corrupts absolutely. And we see that time and time again throughout all of our lives. And here's the thing that we get into verse 8 and verse 9 of chapter 5. He's going to do something that nobody likes in church. He gets political. He gets political. And to be blunt and right up front, you know what he says about politics? They're meaningless. Just like everything else he's talked about. It's this 
type of oppression and stealing from others to better yourselves. That is the definition of politics nowadays. And I say nowadays, but obviously it was the same 3,000 years ago when he was writing this. If you've ever driven down Southern, you notice it was very clean until about the last week when it all of a sudden popped up with all these signs on who to vote for. We are in 2024 and political season is ramping up from the local level all the way up to the national level. And it's, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable and it's unfortunate because the reason why it's uncomfortable is because it gets ugly. And we all know it. There's going to be ugly things said. There's going to be ugly things done. And it's always the fault of the other party. It's always their fault. And it's going to all be done in the name of democracy and justice. I think that's the worst part. But the truth is, as Solomon says, the people we elect to, to uphold justice, to, to set things right, to pass laws, to protect the hurting, to protect the vulnerable, to protect those who need to be protected are the ones who are going to end up being the oppressors. They're going to use that because power corrupts. And even if a person sees the evil in the system and you have this desire to reform things and change things, once in power, the corruption begins to set in. Because whoever or whatever sponsors your campaign is going to have influence on you. And the I'll scratch your back and you scratch mine kind of thinking kicks in. And the teaming up in alliances, I'm going to compromise in this little way right here. It's the same in the political system. It's the same in the financial system. It's the same in the judicial system. They're all set up that if you want to climb that ladder, the chances for compromise are big. And the giving into that compromise is going to happen to happen somewhere along the line if you want to get to that next rung, which leads to the oppression of the lessers because you're going to use other people in the process. For the most part, we all know the system. What I have said this morning is not shocking. You're not going, ooh, that, I've never seen that in politics. I've never seen that in the judicial system. I've never seen, you're not going to say that because we understand that it's going to happen. We might not understand the degrees of what's going on behind the scenes, but we understand it. And if you're watching, you see it. It can frustrate us. It can make us mad. But the question is, what are you going to do about it? If it's corrupt, what are you going to do about it? As a matter of fact, Solomon says that in verse 8. Don't be shocked. Don't be astonished when you see it. That bureaucratic hierarchy makes oppression predictable. The funny thing is, bureaucracy, when it was put in place, it was actually put in place with checks and balances on purpose to have a purpose of making sure that oppression didn't happen, but it actually sets up oppression by the higher officials. And you know what Solomon even says? It even goes up as high as the king. What was he when he was writing this? He was the king. He was talking about himself. He says, hey, it's there. It's there for all of us to be a part of. The idea that he's getting at is that government officials are going to protect one another. And as they protect one another, they're going to use it for their own personal gain. They will oppress that person they're protecting, as a matter of fact, because it's going to give them some dirt. It's going to give them some chips to cash in later, which makes getting rid of corruption impossible we live in a following world and we're going to see it so don't be shocked when it happens now it makes you feel pretty good about november doesn't it that we just have all this hope coming at us our way verse nine it's interesting it takes this next shift as he talks about it and continues on that because verse nine it can actually be translated two different ways and there's different commentaries that go each way there's a positive way 
And there's a negative way. It says, the profit from the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. Meaning, the king might be good and for the good of the land, or the king might be taking advantage of the land. Or both. It's a weird tension for it to be both, but it's entirely possible. See, the positive, the the king is caring about the land, and, and he might be a necessary evil. Even if he's corrupt, even if he has selfish motives, the land needs a leader, an authority to make sure laws are followed, because without laws, guess what happens? There's anarchy. And in anarchy, it seems like it's chaos everywhere, but you know what even happens in anarchy? A leader rises up that doesn't care about the land. So there's this necessary evil of a king who needs to care about the land. That's the positive side. The negative is, is maybe there's that king that just leads and only cares about himself and his political allies and nothing else. And he's calling this out, saying, this can be either way. But the thing is, no matter which way you look at it, Solomon says, the mess of all political systems, not just in the United States, by the way, he wasn't gearing at the United States, are because we live in a fallen world. We have selfish, sinful hearts, and that power corrupts. And he says this tension exists. That power may corrupt, but we need somebody in place for the greater good. It kind of drives home that point of the whole book so far. Everything seems to be meaningless under the sun. Even politics. Whereas it said in chapter 4, it's better not to have been born at all and have to deal with this. Stealing from one another to better ourselves. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with our hearts? What's wrong with these things? Then Solomon actually shifts to money. He says, you may be stealing from others, but hey, guess what? Also, don't steal from yourselves. And we pick up in verse 10 where he says, the one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. This too is futile. The brutal reality. It's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. The wealth the things we buy with the wealth, the time we give to gain the wealth. In this life, under the sun, it doesn't matter how much you have because you are not satisfied. We're never satisfied. You always come away empty and the premise of this whole line of thinking is to show how foolish it is to live a life without God. To live a life for yourself. I've shared this before. I'll share it again. Uh, For a short time, I sold cars. I know you can't picture me as a car salesman, but here I am. I sold cars, but one of the things I had to do when I went through training was they told you the best way to follow up. One of the things they tell you during training is by year, or sorry, month number three, people are beginning to treat their cars a little less pristine, I guess is the best way to put it. Nobody's allowed to eat in my car. Nobody's allowed to have drinks in my car. Nobody's allowed to have anything in my car until about month three. And that's when you start going through the drive throughs you start putting some things in there, so on and so forth. But by month six, they say, make sure you're following up with your customers because by that point in time, guess what? They're dissatisfied and they want something new. By month six, that is pretty much the story of our lives. And if they know that as salesmen, you better believe that you're going to be attacked in that way. Always wanting something new. But one thing I noticed in this verse is that Solomon never mentions an amount of income. He never mentions if you are poor or if you are rich. Instead, he says, if your heart is bent in the wrong direction. 
Think about this. If you can have an unhealthy love of money, whether you already have a lot or you have very little. The issue doesn't lie in the money itself, though. Because you know what? Money is just a tool. Money is just a tool. It's like any other tool. Take, for example, a hammer, okay? A hammer in the hands of someone who knows how to use it. They can build things up. They can fix things. They can help put things in their place. A hammer in the hands of somebody who doesn't use it for an intended purposes, that's when we need to worry. Okay? Uh, let me give you a, an example in case you're wondering. If I got into public transportation and there was a guy in the back, there was a construction worker and he was sitting there and he had a hammer in his hand, he had a hard hat, he had all the stuff, everything just seems normal. But if I got into public transportation and I looked and there was a guy in the back wearing a ski mask wielding a hammer around, there's going to be a bit of a difference. The hammer didn't change. It's who's wielding the hammer that did. It's the heart of the person with the hammer and the intention to use it or not. Money is the same. You can use money to build things up, to fix things, and I don't mean that in a corruption manner that we're going back to politics, uh, to help put things in their proper place. But you can also worship your money. You can worship with your money or you can worship your money. See, I looked... And I didn't go super deep into it, but I don't recall any Bible verses talking poorly about money itself. But you know what it talks poorly about? The love of money. The heart behind it. The heart, that love of money is, as the Bible says, the root of all evil. The love of money shows the sinfulness of the human heart. It puts a spotlight on the fact that what I have is not enough. What I have is not good enough. If I just had a little bit more, then I would be satisfied. I guess the question is, did you say that before you have all that you have right now? The answer is yes. When you were just a little bit poorer, when your car was just a little bit lesser, when your house was just a little bit smaller, when you were eating ramen noodles because that's all you could afford, you would jump at the opportunity to be where you are right now. So why are we not satisfied with where we are right now? That's the question that hangs over each and every one of us. It's kind of like one of those cartoons. And I could pretty much do any cartoon in this way, but Looney Tunes is always the way. There's always that mirage that was out there in the distance. And they were crawling through the desert to get to that mirage. When they finally got to that mirage, they would take that what they thought was a drink of water and they were only drinking sand. It's pretty much how we live our lives. We have that mirage and if I could just get to that place then I'd be satisfied and there is no satisfaction because there is no living water. It's just sand. It's only going to make you thirstier. Solomon's point is that you'll never have enough in this world. You'll never have enough in this world and since you'll never have enough in this world, it's not worth the pursuit. It's not worth all of the things to try and get to make that your life goal. He says, there's got to be something more. Then he brings up another problem with wealth, and he says this in verse 11. When good things increase, the one who consumes them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? If you want the mat translation, this is what it says. The more you have, the more the moochers are going to show up. That's basically what he's saying. The more people will want to use you, and like a leech, they're going to want to suck you dry. Everyone and everything is going to want a handout from what you have. And Solomon says, do you know what you get to do? Just sit back and watch it disappear. Just sit back and watch it disappear. The story 
is a story that we see all the time. Think about just about any rock star. Think about just about any... I mean, why do you think that Isleta Casino hosts all these 80s bands? Because they don't have any money left and they have to make it somehow. They, they have to try and continue that lifestyle. When, when you look at professional athletes, that, that rags to riches back to rags story, do you understand that the average NFL player is bankrupt within three years of being done in the NFL? And 78% of NFL players are bankrupt within two years. Two years of having millions of dollars and the NBA is the same. Lifestyle and entourage. Those are the two words I'd have to say that cause that drain. As a matter of fact, if you want a biblical story, get away from the world story, think about the prodigal son. He had lots of friends until he didn't have lots of money. That's when everybody left him and he got stuck in the pig pot. That's the way it works. That's the way of this world. And then Solomon tosses in this nugget of information. In verse 12, he says, The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. Well, what's he saying here? He's saying, well, if you're content with what you have, you're going to sleep better. Why? Because you're not worried about what you don't have. You're not worried about tomorrow's business deal. You're not worried about who's going to try and knock you off the ladder. You're not thinking about how to get more. You understand what you have is enough. So the takeaway from this verse really is is more money and more stuff is not going to bring peace or rest or the enjoyment of life that you think it's going to bring. As a matter of fact, Solomon expands that thinking in verse 13 when he says, there's a sickening tragedy I have seen under the sun. Wealth kept by its owner is to his harm. Now that's an interesting verse to me. But it really goes about the stinginess of the human heart, of humanity, and the effects that it has on each of us. There was an article written by, by a non-Christian, by the way. He was a journalist, and he wrote this article. It's called, What Wealth Does to Your Soul. And in the article, he cites studies that, that show that the desire to and the making of more money actually makes you more selfish, more unhealthy, more unhappy, and dishonest. And that rich people are like to be more rude or ruder, drive recklessly, and not care about anyone else. Being stingy, as this article says, and as Solomon says, will hurt your family relationships. And it's going to hurt your health, as it says in verse 12, and be detrimental to your character. I guess it's funny. We did at the movies back in December, but Ebenezer Scrooge just keeps hanging around. His characters just seem to be involved in all of Ecclesiastes. The Bible tells us, and secular research has proven it to be true, we should live opposite. We should live generously. Because see, when we give generously of ourselves, we're better mentally, we're better physically, we're better emotionally, and we are better spiritually. 2 Corinthians 12, 15. I probably read it a ton of times, but somehow it stuck out to me this week so much so that I text Christy. I'm like, listen to this verse. It said, Paul talking to the church at Corinth, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I said, that, 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 that just, somehow that took a whole new turn reading that. I will gladly be spent I will gladly pour myself out and I will spend for your souls. Because that is what matters, isn't it? 
The stuff does not matter. The next car six months from now does not matter. I mean, what if we weren't stingy with our stuff? What if we, we can go back to our five T's. I know we've talked about it multiple times. We had a great membership class week, talked about it then as well. But our five T's, our time, our talent, our treasures, our testimony, and our temple. What if those things we weren't stingy with? What if we, we weren't stingy with our time and, and hoarding it to ourselves? What if we weren't stingy with our treasure and hoarding it to ourselves? What if we weren't with our testimony? What if we shared our story how would this world be different? What if we gave of our talents? He talks about keeping it to ourselves. It's harm. And then he goes to the next level what that harm is going to look like in verse 14. That wealth that we held together, that we kept to ourselves, was lost in a bad venture. So when he followed his son, he was empty-handed. Bad venture. What does that mean? Well, it could be a bad investment. It could be economic downturn. Couldn't even be gambling from some of the things that I was reading about. It doesn't say, but what it does say is that there was nothing left to provide for the family. That's where the great harm came in. Neither now nor later. And he throws this verse right in the middle of all of this. He's basically saying, don't let your money, don't let your possessions, the things that you have to hold on to be the basis of your value. The basis of your family's happiness or your happiness. Because guess what? They can be gone just like that. Which leads to verse 15 and 16, because he says, As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again. Naked as he came, he will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. This too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does one gain who struggles for the wind? You brought nothing in, you're taking nothing out. During during that funeral that was right here the the guy was a bmxer he loved riding his bmx bike they had his bmx bike sitting right here now i may have been a bit uh, brash with the way i said it during a funeral but i said he's here it's there he's going it's staying no matter how much he loved that bike that bike will end up in a recycle bin at some point in time and he is going back to where he came empty-handed. And even if you don't lose your money in a bad venture, you're going to lose it when you die. Maybe you saw our social media post with a hearse in the U-Haul. You can't take it with you. So why do we work so hard to accumulate as much as we can when we're just going to lose it in the end anyway? Maybe you recognize the name Steve Jobs. Pretty recognizable name. Founder of Apple. Died a couple of years ago. You know what his net worth was when he died? $10.2 billion. You know how much he took with him? Zero. You know what he couldn't do? Was stand in the face of judgment of God and buy his way out of it. There is no corruption there. And that's what we see in our lives. Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 12 with the rich fool who built burger barns. We talked about that passage before, but the great thing about that parable in Luke 12, 13 through 21, if you want to read it, you can. It's followed up by Luke 12, 22 through 34. And in Luke 12, 22 through 34, he mentions a handful of things. One of them is, don't worry about the stuff in this life. He also says, seek first the kingdom of God and where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Since there is no gain, 
When we die, there is no gain. And then he says this in verse 17. What is more? Is Even though that's the end, think about now. He eats in darkness all his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. Now I'm just going to tell you something. In all of my life, I can only recall a very short time that I ate meals by myself. Because I lived at home until about a year before Christy and I got married. Christy said, hey, you've got to move out so you uh, have some actual responsibility under your belt before we get married. So I moved out, lived on my own for a year, and during that time, it's probably when I ate by myself the most. But then after that, we made it a point, Christy and I, that we would have family meals. And now we're to the point where we have like a United Nations kind of thing going around every, every evening at our house. And, and we eat meals together. I know some of you don't, but that, that's our thing. We make sure that, that that time is set aside. And we eat those meals together. And I'll tell you, there's joy in being able to sit around that table and eat and laugh together. But when he says this, he eats in darkness all his days with much frustration and sickness and anger. goes back to that solitaire, sorrow, sickness, anger, frustration, alone. You know what that says to me? He doesn't enjoy life. He doesn't enjoy what God has given him and then he dies. Well, that sounds amazing. I think we should pursue that. That should be what our life purpose is all about. That's again the picture of Scrooge, isn't it? Trying to find satisfaction in things of this world. It's meaningless. Do you know what Solomon says? Stop it. Stop it. Stop trying that. Don't go that route. It's been tried thousands and thousands of years and it's been unsuccessful every time. So here's what he says. Here's what I've seen that is good. It's appropriate to eat and drink and experience good in, the, in, in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life that God has given him because that's his reward. He has that carpe diem moment again, that, that seize the day moment. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. For he does not often consider the days of his life because he, God keeps him occupied with the joys of his heart. I love that last line, that God keeps him occupied with the joys of his heart. We have a word for that. It's called contentment contentment. That's what we're called to have during these short days of our lives. Enjoy what God has given you instead of being constantly on the move for more. Constantly craving more. He says, enjoy your food. Enjoy your work. Enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your family because until you enjoy what you have, why should He give you more? Why should He give you new things to try and satisfy you? Why would new things even try and satisfy if you're not happy with what you have? Why should God provide more if you're not content with what He's already given? We get caught up in this mindset and so concerned about what we don't have, we miss what we do. And that is a hard place for us to be. We get so caught up in the myth that money or wealth will solve every problem. We get caught up in the myth that that wealth brings satisfaction or the myth that wealth brings peace of mind or the wealth that that wealth will bring us security. We said, don't steal from yourself because those myths and the chasing after those myths steal from us realizing what or who actually does. Because the truth is, is this. Jesus and our salvation found in Him 
is the only thing that will solve every problem. Eventually. Maybe not on this earth, but eventually. Jesus and our salvation found in Him is the only thing that will bring satisfaction. Jesus and our salvation found in Him is the only thing that will bring peace of mind. And Jesus and our salvation found in Him is the only thing that will provide security. After reading this passage, one other verse popped into my mind. One verse that if I was going to define success, this would be the verse that would do it. It was a parable about the using of the talents. Maybe you remember that. The, 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 the manager who left the talents behind 10 and 5 and 1. And what did he say in Matthew 25, 23 when the guy appropriately used his talents? His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. If you want the definition of success and you want to know how to win in this life, it is found in that verse right there. To hear at the end of our lives, because God gave and we invested properly, well done, good and faithful servant. That is my prayer for you and that is my prayer for me today and every day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are and what you continue to do in our lives. The way you continue to speak to us and guide us and direct us. Thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a hard book, but at the same time, so enlightening. To know a man like Solomon, who had everything and did everything, can share the results of his experiments, that all of it here is meaningless, but instead to fear you and to live for you. God, that's what it's all about, because everything here is temporary, but everything with you is eternal. Let us focus on eternity today and every day. God, we want you to have the glory in our lives. We want to be able to take the things that you have given, given us and invest them properly to see the next generations continue to grow and find you. God, that's our prayer today and it's our prayer every day. We pray it in that heavenly name of yours. Amen. I'm going to jump down here in the front because this is one of those passages that I didn't really want to do. Because when you talk about politics and you talk about money, you're at two strikes right out the gate at the church. But here we are, and here's what Solomon says, and maybe you were challenged like I was this week on how we invest what we've been given and how content we are with what we've been given. 